my guest for global development review podcast episode is professor marty ortiz professor marty ortiz is a california based medical anthropologist and filmmaker he's chair and associate professor in the anthropology department at university of colorado in denver united states His study area includes exploitative labor practices of global tobacco companies in Malawi's tobacco growing sector. He also researches on occupational health concern of cannabis workers in Colorado and digital storytelling as a resource to examine health equities and social justice. Professor Marty has many books and publication into his credits which includes the recent manuscript which is co-authored with Jesse Grewal entitled Health and Safety in Legal Cannabis Industry Before and During COVID-19. Professor Marty received his PhD in anthropology from University of California Irvine in 2014 and he produces the community television show which is named as Getting High on Anthropology, a story-based approach to cannabis research. education and funding in this podcast we talk with professor marty about malawi's growing tobacco sector in this podcast professor marty shares about his work on tobacco farming and child labor in africa he also helps us to understand the political economy of tobacco farming and child labor in context of malawi and how legal laws on national policies are dealing with the issue of tobacco farming and child labor in Malawi. This podcast also helps us to understand child labor in context of countries suffering from chronic poverty and how do we locate agency of workers in that context. We discuss about the fact that does the agency of child matters, how do we look into the academic discourse of agency, child labor and child trafficking, particularly in context of African subcontinent professor marty also shares about the nature of exploitation or harms that child labor and adult laborers do experience in tobacco farming and what are the differences and commonalities and he also recommends how the global and domestic policies needs to work in order to minimize the harms that the workers are facing there Professor Marty also talks about the colonial legacy of tobacco industry in Malawi. He also talks about state and corporate nexus which impacts the lives and livelihood and struggles of farming workers in Malawi. I hope you enjoy this conversation and learn from this podcast as I do a lot. Professor Marty, welcome to Global Development Review Podcast and thank you very much for accepting my invitation and it's a lovely pleasure to have you here and learn from your work and insights. Could you please um, share something about your research work in Africa, particularly about tobacco farming and child labor in Africa and, and what, what were the key findings of your research there? Excellent. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity to be on your podcast and I appreciate the work you're doing and this is very exciting for me to talk about uh, this work and learn uh, from others and especially about your work. So I um started a PhD program in cultural anthropology in 1996 in the anthropology department at the University of California Irvine and as part of that uh, program Malawi's tobacco growing sector and that interests 
was built on a master's degree that I did at the Institute for Social Studies, which um, is in the Netherlands, that you and I have this shared history because you're currently uh, enrolled there. And I finished in 1995. As part of my master's thesis, I did a study of some labor issues in Malawi, specifically looking at a textile workers strike that happened in uh, the late or early 1990s, which helped fuel the downfall of a 30-year dictatorship in Malawi. So I did this study through the Institute for Social Studies, and um, I became very interested in some of the politics and economic issues in Malawi and decided to continue on uh, during my dissertation. And so in the dissertation, I switched focus from textile workers to um, tobacco farmers and farm workers. And my very specific interest was to educate myself about some of the uh, challenges that families who grow tobacco leaf for global markets and global companies, I was interested in some of the challenges that they face, uh, specifically along economic lines, social lines, environmental lines. And the key findings are really simple. And it's not specific to Malawi or specific to tobacco, but the key findings are that men, women, and children who devote their lives to cultivating tobacco end up in a vicious cycle of poverty. And that cycle of poverty tends to be perpetuated by the exploitative labor practices and contract arrangements of Philip Morris uh, British American Tobacco, Japan Tobacco, and other global cigarette manufacturers and leaf buying companies. And the key um, link is that the companies profit from unpaid child and unpaid adult labor. And so I was interested to understand all the intersections and then collect stories, you know, through interviews, uh, collect um, the daily victories that people are having on the farms in Malawi to try to challenge uh, tobacco companies or at least make visible the bad practices of these uh, tobacco companies, not only in Malawi, of course, that was my original focus, but also in other countries, including India, Argentina, uh, Bolivia. Uh, there's over 130 countries that grow tobacco, and with careful research and in my area, critical ethnographic skills, you can find child labor in virtually all of these countries. How is the legal um, framework in, in Malawi if we talk about child labor and the tobacco industry there? So uh, you're talking about the unpaid labor there. So was there any legal pro protection or protection from you know, government or civil society there uh, to help these workers? Excellent. Yeah, thanks for the question. So there's two dimensions to your questions. There's like the existing legal framework, which you can look at any country, any region, but then there's the issue of implementation. Mm -hmm. And so countries could have a laundry list of excellent uh, regulations and rules, but if there's no enforcement mechanism, then these are baseless. They're, they're useless. And that's pretty much the case in Malawi. And I think you'll find this in many um, non-dominant uh, countries that they can follow and mirror their legal systems based on, you know, Europe or whatever. But you'll find if there's no implementation measures, then it, it's just rules and regulations that are blowing in the wind. Um, so, of course, they have uh, rules 
and regulations, and they may have changed since I started my work in 1995, um, looking in Malawi um, in 1997, specifically tobacco is when I started there. Um, certainly have, they have regulations that say, you know, people 16 years and older is okay, but under is it's not allowed. Um, but the problem is you go outside of urban areas. And again, about 80% of the population is in rural Malawi. So when you go outside of the urban areas, you can have the authorities there, labor departments, you know, you can have police departments, but in the rural areas, it's like the wild, wild west. People can just, in a way, do what they want and have very, very few penalties, even if they are caught violating the law. Uh, if we talk about the tobacco industry, I just want to uh, understand, like, uh, how they were functional uh, there, like, they had contractors, like how the big corporates, uh, you were talking about the tobacco firms from Europe or other parts of the world. So how they actually function there, what is like their modus operandi there, working in the Malawi, in Africa in general? Okay, so the companies, you know, you have to recognize that in a country like Malawi, which is a former, you know, British colony, um, it was uh, forced to grow tobacco over a hundred years ago, not only to meet the demands of consumers in Britain, uh, in the U.S., but also elsewhere. And so the infrastructure has been there for over a century. And you can look at Malawi and look at its development, which was primarily to support corporate interests. Um, and, and these companies, there's two dimensions to them. There's the global cigarette makers so they're the ones that make Marlboro, Marlboro cigarettes, Camel cigarettes, um, and then there's the leaf buying companies. So typically the cigarette companies don't have a existence or presence in the countries. So what they do is they have pre-arranged contracts where they work with leaf buying companies, and then the leaf buying companies have a presence in Malawi. And so what they do is they have, let's say for a, a season of tobacco growing, they have on paper an agreement to supply a certain amount to Philip Morris, a certain amount to BAT, British American Tobacco, a certain amount to Japan Tobacco. So over the course of a growing season, they try to fulfill those um, contracts by working with a series of other people. These can be large farms, and these are increasingly called corporate farms, where the leaf companies actually operate and administer the farms themselves. So that's one level, but there can also be smallholder farmers. So these are individuals that have small plots of land. And then within each of those, the, the corporate farms and or the smallholder farmers, sometimes they hire other individual farmers to uh, cultivate tobacco. And so there's a series of, of layers of how the companies at the cigarette company level try to distance themselves from the actual stuff happening at the soil level. But at the same time, they want to increase their quality so they have a clear connection from the corporate office to the farm to make sure they get the high quality um, uh, tobacco leaf. And so in general, that's kind of how these companies operate. But what they do, which is extremely difficult for researchers and educators, is once a 
container of tobacco leaves Malawi. It's shipped out of Mozambique or South Africa, mostly goes to Europe and other countries. But that aspect of the supply chain, they do their very best to conceal that part of the supply chain. So people don't know exactly where the cigarette tobacco leaf comes from in these different um, brands of cigarettes. And what is the extent of child labor? Actually, you were talking about the unpaid labor of children in those farms. So how it, I'm just wondering how it works because, for example, in context of India, you might know that, uh, you know, there is a family which, which takes, you know, contract from a person and do the farming or farm work. And then child also gets involved in it. So uh, I'm just wondering, is it the same context which is happening in Malawi, like, how actually the child labor is functioning here? Yeah, I think there's many similarities. And here's a couple of ways of how they're um, uh, similar. <clears throat> so what happens is a family, a, a, a person, a man, typically makes an arrangement with a corporate farm or a landlord, someone who owns the land. Okay, and so what happens is there's either verbal agreements or there's paper agreements on paper where you sign the contract and the different elements of the contract and the way the companies administer the contracts, that's the key mechanism of coercion. So the contracts spell out how much land, how much um, uh, inputs like agricultural inputs like tools, uh, plastic, seeds. um, And also it leaves vague the price per kilogram. So what happens is a man, again, of course you have women independent farmers, but rarely it's just mostly the men. The nature of the contract requires that in order for the man to meet the obligations, he has to use his wife and his children. It could be two, four, six children to help in the fields. So for a growing season that starts in September, October, they begin uh, preparing the land, uh, planting the seeds, uh, applying pesticides in the nursery, transplanting, weeding, uh, cultivating, drying. So the children help in many different aspects And then what happens is when the farmer is ready to give the tobacco to the contract holder, then you find that the contract holder says, you've taken this much food, you've taken this much agricultural inputs, and because I have more power than you, I make my prices higher than if you go outside of the farm. And so sometimes the farmer and his family end up owing the landlord or the company more money because of the cost of the agricultural inputs. Of course, some people do make money, but they make money barely enough to survive, but it keeps them just enough interested to try one more year with with prayers that maybe they'll make it better next year. And because they have limited uh, options for uh, employment or limited land, that they just either choose to stay on the farm or go somewhere else. And so what happens with the children, they end up maybe spending two or three months in the tobacco fields helping and they don't go to school, their development gets affected, 
their education gets affected, and then even their um, uh, their life chances over time ends up getting uh, uh, truncated because then they fall into the same cycle as um, uh, their father. Is it also uh, the case of uh, like bonded labor, like in context of India, we have like the debt is you know transferred to next generation and generation after generation, so they have to work in the field. So is it the same context in, in case of Malawi? Yeah, so when I first started, you had a different structure in terms of labor in Malawi. You had mostly or a bigger portion of tenant farmers. So these are like sharecroppers that would agree to grow tobacco on a certain amount of land and then give the money and then keep money for themselves. So that system changed in the early 2000s where the government changed the law to allow the tobacco companies to operate big farms. And so over time, um, the tenant system, which had an excessive amount of bonded labor, you know, individuals who are tied to their situation because of, um, of an arrangement and that not earning enough money and having to be not physically chained to the farm, but through economic debt, they would be uh, bonded and stuck uh, in that area. Um, that has changed a little where um, it's a little more insidious and hard to see, but the mechanism, as I said earlier, that keeps people bonded uh, is this contract arrangement. And so for me as an educator, as a researcher, what I'm trying to do is collect contracts from tobacco farms and farming arrangements from around the world to analyze what's in the contract and how that is a way for the tobacco companies to keep a grip on the farmers themselves and perpetuate child labor as well as this uh, debt servitude or bonded labor. Also, when, when we're talking about child labor, like this is just an academic point of view, I'm just asking, there is also an issue of agency of you know, person who considered as a traffic victims or person under exploitation. So in, in context of your research and experiences, like how did you see and the agency of these uh, like workers and and also like as a student of you know uh, the same sector, I also just want to understand from you like how do we conceptualize agency in, in this particular because it's very tough to understand agency of a child. Yeah, I, I really love that question because, you know, we have a responsibility as academic people, as researchers, to not just look at people as victims, you know, as, as having no substance and no power. So if you interest was to look at the daily victories that people were having on the farms, and what I be, mean by that is people are really smart at the ground level to try to make ends meet. And so to give you one very specific example, in um, the tobacco fields, if you go early and you cultivate um, and, and harvest tobacco, sometimes there's moisture on the leaves, okay? And that moisture, if it goes to your skin and you have a long-term, uh, like over several hours of contact, then you get nicotine poisoning. And so what I learned is 
number one, this is under-researched, but number two, some of the tobacco workers that I spoke with said they recognize that if they go into the farms, sorry, the, the fields, and they get that moisture on their skin from the leaves, they get sick. So what they do is they wait for the sun to dry the leaves and they take care of their health. So there's no one there forcing them to go into the field. So they have agency to protect themselves in whatever little way that they can. And so for me, um, the agency comes from how they try to make ends meet. And that could either be um, acts of resistance. So one of my main areas of interest was labor unions and how workers would assert their rights as workers to make sure they're treated fairly. And so in (coughs) Malawi and other countries, some people do gravitate toward a labor organization as a vehicle to help them voice their dissatisfaction. So there's that kind of agency that's happening, but also this idea of resistance. What I found really fascinating was that when the workers were bundling and putting together in a container, um, it's uh, like a a fabric. They put their um, tobacco into a bale and then it's this like a burlap sack. And so what they would do, and this is a way that, Uh, demonstrates agency, they would put bricks or they would put rocks or they would put something in there to increase the weight because they would get paid by per kilogram. And so what happened is, of course, sometimes the companies would see this stuff and they would get unhappy or dissatisfied, but the workers themselves, it was clear uh, steps on their part to try to get a better salary because they weren't earning it by just asking it. Now, what is fascinating about this is the bales of tobacco would leave the farm and go to the processing facility in the capital called Lalongwe. And the machines would would break apart the, the tobacco that's compacted into the burlap sack. And then the bricks or rocks or um, uh, uh, branches would break the blades of the machine, and then there would be a stoppage of the processing of the tobacco at the market where they would trade uh, and sell it uh, on the quote-unquote open market. So these are just different examples of how the resistance reflects agency, but it also had a significant impact to disrupt the flow of production at at a higher level. Yeah, for example, you were talking about... Uh, harms or repercussions on their health while working in the field. But I also want to understand like uh, what were the kind of exploitations or harms that you know they do face in their everyday life, uh, be it from uh, tobacco industries or from their employer or local power relations. How and how, how do they navigate? Like you were saying, that we, they try to exercise their agency in different. Uh, forms. So, what uh, what we can say that uh, what are the basic uh, or major harms or exploitations that you know they face in their trajectory? Okay, yeah. So you're asking about a um, a man, a woman, and child who devote their labor to tobacco. The kinds of harms that they face. So there's different categories of harm. 
the most obvious is health. So health and wellness. So specific to tobacco, there's only one health issue that's directly related to the tobacco plant. And that relates to the nicotine poisoning from the leaves. So that's unique to tobacco. So you could argue that in some cases, people might get this poisoning, even though they're able to manage it by, by taking their labor out of the fields until the leaves dry. But there's other health issues that are specific to agricultural production generally, but also you find in tobacco. So there's pesticides poisoning. Everything from opening the canister without any protection, using your hands to pour it, to mix it, the inhalation. So those things tend to erode the health of the tobacco farmers and their family members. But then you also have the um, uh, fertilizers, uh, constant uh, exposure to the chemicals. The long-term exposure has effects on people's health and wellness. Uh, you have um, everything from uh, broken bones, from working high up in structures that are made to dry the tobacco. You can have uh, cuts from the, the axe uh, or a hoe that's used to weed. Sometimes people cut their uh, foot or their toes. There's problems of snake bites, uh, muscle soreness from working, crouching all day or spending all night <coughs> in the uh, where they dry the tobacco. Uh, another problem is if you are a farmer, you put the tobacco in your house to dry because you don't want to leave it outside because of moisture or maybe someone could steal it. So then when you sleep in your house or a hut with lots of tobacco, that uh, consistent exposure is not good for your, um, for your respiratory system. So these are some examples of the health problems, but then you have social problems, which is isolation, uh, you're far from your family. Uh, and then of course, there's the destitution that happens because people aren't getting a, a salary. Uh, and then there's exhaustion because people find they can't only work in tobacco. They have to do other jobs because they still need to make money. So they may sell their labor uh, doing bricks, you know, carrying brick or maybe selling donuts or bread. And so it's just this ongoing process of your labor getting exhausted with very little benefit. And the true benefits are to the tobacco companies the CEOs, and then the stakeholders who profit from the poor health uh, along um, uh, wellness lines, but also economic and social line. If we look into the ratio, for example, ratios of extraction, for, for example, if a company is investing and, and they, how much it goes, the profit goes to uh, the farmers or the workers there and how much the companies are earning from it. Is there any kind of percentage of share of income or profit that we can talk about? I think anecdotally, you know, I could say maybe, you know, the, the uh, farmers and farm workers, you know, maybe they're, the cost of labor is so insignificant, you know, maybe 1%, 3%, 5%, but the impact on the human, you know, the individuals is, is massive. So, as I said earlier, historically, tobacco, the industry itself, has been in Malawi since the late 1800s. Around 1890 is when the company started or the cultivation for export started. 
So the companies like to argue tobacco is good for Malawi. It promotes foreign revenues. It provides the money to buy the medicine. It helps with employment. It helps with development. So if over a century of tobacco in Malawi, and again, Malawi is very, very unique. It's a, a an anomaly because over 60% of its foreign revenues come from tobacco leaf. So it's the, it's the most highly economically reliant country on tobacco leaf in the world. And so its case is very unique uh, because not only that dependence, but also the, the power, the excessive power of the companies. So over all of this time, if you go to Malawi and if tobacco was such a valuable crop for the society and the economy, the country should be swimming in money and people should be driving you know, Mercedes and, and living nicely, but that's not the case. The, the country is ranked, I think, around the 15th poorest country in the world, if you go by UNDP uh, figures, and it's the companies themselves that are laughing because of how much money they have made from the unpaid adult and, and child labor. And so there's so many ways that this could be curbed, but because companies tend to have a cozy relationship with the government, you find challenges to change the system, how it's certainly structured today. So for example, these companies through creative accounting are able to get all of the value added and all of the taxes that they're supposed to pay. They basically flout that uh, approach and take everything out of the country. And so Malawi is really just left holding uh, an empty wallet or uh, an environment that is devastated uh, because of the soil, the deforestation, the polluted water. And so the, the question we have to ask ourselves is what model exists for corporate accountability to make sure that these companies are transparent, for example, sharing the contract information so we can ensure that they're fair and equitable but then also um, how to hold them responsible of uh, the, the cycle of poverty that exists. And these companies are not stupid. As you've learned in um, other sectors, they embrace good corporate citizenship, you know, corporate social responsibility. So these programs are a way for the companies to distract public attention of the practices of these companies that allow them to uh, keep siphoning money out and not revealing how their practices are part of the problems in the economy and along social wellness lines in Malawi. I also want to uh, understand and know from you like the role of uh, international organizations and like for example civil society groups, uh, including the ILO, which is like you know promoting uh, uh, different conventions against child labor. So how do you see their role and like, does it work or it helps in local context or like it's just like another piece of legislation and policy framework? So, okay, again, such a great question with many uh, complicated dimensions, but to keep it real simple, the ILO, the International Labor Organization, 
it is there and it's necessary. It, it has these protocols that we should follow, <clears throat> that Malawi should follow. And of course, I recognize that the contradiction is I'm in the, in the United States, you know, the number one country, if you want to still claim that, and we don't even honor the ILO protocols. We don't even sign on to all of them. And so in one way, the ILO is good for setting standards. In another way, countries like Malawi and United States, if we choose to sign them, we can just flout them. So one of the problems with the ILO in the context of Malawi is that the ILO operates under a tripartite model. So that means it works with employers, it works with government, and it works with workers. And so typically when you have those three parties together, it's the companies that have the most amount of power. And so typically what happens is the ILO may focus on, you know, quality of workplace issues, health and safety, but they don't necessarily get at the core problems of business practices that are perpetuating poverty in the first place. So the ILO is important. It does nice reports. It does good um, research and it tries to encourage people to think of how to get government to work with the, the uh, 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 trade unions and to work with the employers. Now, civil society in Malawi has been uh, facing many, many challenges because any civil society organization to survive, you need money, you need funding, okay? And so when you look specifically at tobacco, Historically in Malawi, there's been one organization focusing on uplifting the rights and conditions of workers at the farm level in tobacco. And that's been the, uh, the Union for Tobacco Farm Workers. Now, recently, like in the last one or two years, um, the union, which started in 1994, has gone dormant. There's been some uh, challenges at the leadership level and changes and some funding problems. So that mechanism is a little dormant right now. Any other organizations at the civil society level that let's say were interested in tobacco, they tended to focus on trying to get people to not smoke because the organizations at the ground level in Malawi were getting money from the international environment to promote uh, you know, smoke-free laws, uh, to promote higher taxes. And so they weren't necessarily focusing on the rights of tobacco farmers because they thought if we're a health organization, we don't want to help or support farmers because they are part of the problem. Now, they didn't necessarily articulate it like that. It's just they had restrictions with their funding. Now, the more dominant uh, group of civil society organizations are the ones that get funded by the tobacco companies. Now, those organizations, as you can imagine, they don't, they don't give a rat's ass about the farm workers and the conditions. What they want to do is promote the agenda of the tobacco companies. And so they highlight the benevolence. They highlight all the contributions of tobacco companies to build schools maybe uh, help with battered women's shelters, uh, build, uh, when you wait for a bus to build a shelter, 
Um, they might uh, plant trees, but they will not attack or reveal how the contract arrangements and other exploitative practices of the companies are actually hurting uh, the economy of Malawi. And, and why this is important is because we agree that a healthy society would be better to not grow tobacco and grow food crops, you know, food crops so people can feed themselves and maybe cash crops different than tobacco. Um, so what these nonprofits do with the help of the uh, cigarette companies and leaf buying companies is they promote alternative livelihoods and they promote crop diversification and they promote human rights and sustainability, but they never go far enough. They only do it just enough to show the world that, hey, we're reasonable and that we care about Malawi and that we should be at the table to help with decisions about uh, development, sustainability, environmentalism, uh, human rights, but all of it is just marketing to uh, help the companies uh, distract public attention and to keep the steady flow of profits to stakeholders and CEOs. Do the workers have some kind of collective bargaining power there are like unions or collective you know, units that they have, you know, they can go and negotiate with, with these big corporates or the contractors or the employers. So like, do, do they have some kind of mechanism there? Or, uh, they, they work at independent level. So this, again, uh, I really appreciate the question. So the idea, you know, to make sure we're on the same page mm-hmm. is when you have a labor organization, you could argue the gold standard is to have a legally binding contract that is formed through negotiations. But the strength of that process is having a union that represents effectively its workers. And so from 1994 up until the year 2000, uh, this union in Malawi for tobacco farm workers was building its membership and building its worker power. So they were able to get a agreement. Um, you, you know, these memorandum of understanding, an MOU. In the year 2000, uh, the key stakeholders in Malawi agreed to an MOU to begin collective bargaining. And what happened is the main power players in the tobacco sector at the government level and the companies themselves refused to actually honor the provisions in that MOU. So up until 2021, there's never really been genuine collective bargaining. And some of it has even been uh, thwarted because there's some legislation that has been passed that made sure that the rights of farm companies, you know, the cigarette companies and the big corporate farms, they want the tobacco industry pushed legislation to protect them and not necessarily build up better infrastructure to protect the workers in terms of their wages, uh, better health conditions, uh, you know, better uh, overall conditions that are involved in any contract uh, through collective bargaining. So right now at the moment, uh, things are not looking very bright, but I think people, especially when you talk about agency, even if the labor union is unable to have teeth 
in 2021, workers still try to make their life better. And that could be uh, individual acts of resistance or maybe trying to negotiate something better for themselves. Or in extreme cases, people just leave tobacco. They say this sector is not for me and they leave and go to somewhere else uh, to try to make some money and have a decent standard of living. You were talking about, you know, the supply chain uh, arrangements, like uh, we don't understand like how from where this product has come from, like transported and all this. So isn't there any mechanism or any kind of policy which, which, which talks about fair trade and fair supply chain management? Yeah, so there's a few things in your questions that I want to talk about. Um, the first is uh, when you look at the supply chain, uh, there is an agreement to do things in a transparent way because that's just good business practice. Like that's ethical business. But we have to recognize in the tobacco sector, there's been very little ethical practices since day one because the nature of the product itself is so toxic and its human effect is known to kill the people who use the product as it's intended. And, and so already the, the culture of tobacco, they are resistant to any kind of uh, transparency, any kind of uh, ethical framework that we would think is reasonable. And so I think in terms of uh, having, let's say, uh, and, and you didn't, ask this question, but let me just bring it up. You know, having fair trade ethically produced cigarettes, that is something that for 20 years I've been looking into trying to think about. The problem is most of these global fair trade organizations recognize that public health and tobacco control have been operating for years to show the evils of tobacco. And so fair trade companies have criteria that they established to select which products to focus on, you know, uh, foot, uh, uh, footballs, uh, carpets, uh, chocolate, tea, but you won't find tobacco because they they recognize it's a hard sell, but the companies themselves make, you know, ethically produced cigarettes or fair trade cigarettes, but it's, it's just a corporate tactic. It's not like certified by somewhere else. So I I think what's critical is back to the supply issue is there are ways a good researcher and a good person who uses ethnographic methods could just go to all of the key spots of where a shipping container filled with tobacco leaf from Malawi can follow it every step of the way. And I'm I'm pretty sure I have the idea. It goes usually Malawi, uh, Mozambique. Belgium or Germany, and then Poland, and then it's manufactured to cigarettes and sold to India, sold to Malawi, sold to the U.S. But the problem with these supply chain uh, issues is that because they conceal things, it doesn't let us see how they manipulate the global price. And what I mean by that is when a shipping container filled with tobacco from Malawi goes to Europe and let's say goes to Poland or goes to Belgium or Germany, that container can be stored for three years. 
And companies, what they do, depending on the global price of cigarettes or tobacco leaf, they manipulate through inventory changes the global price by either releasing, you know, flooding the market or withholding the leaf. And so all of these things, to summarize, are basically how the companies conceal the way they make money and uh, show the hypocrisy of them saying they're good corporate citizens, but uh, refuse to show the specific steps in the supply chain from the farm until the shelf in the store. So the other thing we didn't talk about, which is why I was drawn to you and your work, is this idea of trafficking. Okay, so when you talk about trafficking, at least in my world of tobacco, there's trafficking in cigarettes. So the illegal trade of uh, of fake cigarettes uh, or companies uh, using tactics to avoid taxes. So there's that kind of illicit trade and trafficking in cigarettes. But I think what you and I do uh, generally is we're interested to make visible problems of trafficking of people. My specific interest is labor trafficking. Uh, I recognize that the global industry of trafficking, like any industry, has a ranking of issues, and sex trafficking typically is the, the, the monster. Everyone looks at that for good reasons. It's an awful thing. But in Malawi, and I think other tobacco-growing countries, there's a problem of labor trafficking that is under-researched and underexplored, And it essentially boils down to this. Companies through labor recruiters go far away from a farm, let's say 500 kilometers, 800 kilometers, and they go to a village, they come with a big truck, and they make all these promises. I promise you, if you get in the truck, I'm going to drive you to a farm and you're going to grow a crop. They could lie and say a corn or they could say tobacco and you're going to make lots of money. You'll come home after one year and have all this money. And so a family who has no land and no employment might get in the truck, be transported, go to a farm and the promises are broken. So technically that's trafficking. And so these individuals are trapped on the farm because they have no money to go home and they are coerced, not you know necessarily physically, but they, they are tied to an agreement to grow tobacco. And so that issue is extremely important. And I'm at the early stages of trying to understand it on a deeper level uh, to understand the individuals who are trafficked, what are their experiences and what are their ideas for solutions. And the tobacco companies recognize that they profit from traffic labor. And once again, they're trying to conceal it or to make sure that this stuff doesn't become public because they don't want their product to be associated with uh, traffic in persons. Also, it's very interesting to know from your insights that it's a colonial legacy. So I was just thinking about it, maybe... uh, if you can explain that, can can you also still say that the colonial arrangements are still existing in context of Malawi, you know, the way it started uh, and it still con- is continuing in, 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 in tobacco industry or in tobacco farming? Yeah, well, it's interesting to hear you 
ask these questions because I understand in the literature in India from Indian scholars, they push post-colonial studies. They push a critical approach to post-colonial uh, systems and uh, settings. So one could argue in Malawi, we are in a neo-colonial period where you have the same structures that exist, but just different faces, different regulations. You could even say it's sort of an economic system of apartheid, but, but the characteristic is tobacco power, uh, tobacco industry power. And, and so, so, yeah, I think the, the colonial structures which exist today, which I describe as neo-colonial, are the corporate influence over the government, uh, but also their ability to use their cash to influence ministers of parliament. And what they do is uh, find people who share the same interests. And we could say specifically those people who are ministers and also operate tobacco farms. So they have a shared interest with these tobacco companies. But then you have the ministries of, let's say, agriculture, ministries of trade, and then the ministries of health. So the colonial systems dumped money into industry and agriculture, but not necessarily health. So we still get the residual of those colonial systems that still exist today. Um, and then, of course, the general culture of looking at labor, you know, looking at men, women, and children as disposable as having one purpose of just providing their labor. And, and so, you know, you, you could look at how colonial structures were overthrown and ask ourselves what is needed, where can we look around the world in India, elsewhere, to show what model has worked to overthrow neo-colonial practices. And that goes into, you know, self um, sustainability, uh, you know, people working together, um, alternative economic systems. And then, of course, you know, what kinds of protests that can build momentum to show that the tobacco companies are not necessarily good for Malawi and that they need to be retooled or forced to leave. Well, when we talk about, you know, grooming of industries like tobacco industries are even even uh, other other drugs industries. So there is also political instabilities in the region. For example, we have seen in other part of the world. So uh, I'm not sure, and I I have no knowledge about it. But I just want to understand. Also, do you think uh, there is some kind of political instability or conflict between the parties, which is uh, you know happening in the country because of this industry? So, you know, uh, Africa has over 54 countries yeah. in the, and Malawi has historically been a peaceful country, very little political divisiveness. Mm -hmm. Of course, you have small battles here and there, but the instability is more along economic and social lines. Um, and, and so I think politically the system is, is uh, manageable, it's reasonable, and it's moving along nicely. Of course, there could be changes with more fairness, but relative to other countries in the region, it's, it's a stable place. So I think any instability is because of the economic exploitative practices of tobacco companies, and then their uh, power relationships that they 
uh, like to uh, keep in play because it, it allows them to just look at Malawi as a pool, as I said earlier, for low cost tobacco uh, at a high price with people not getting a fair share of, of the earnings from the tobacco commodity itself. And so I think instability, if you look at the farms and if you look at people's social conditions, I think that's where you're going to see uh, people potentially express dissatisfaction that might bleed into political instability in the medium term. Thank you so much for uh, this uh, answer. Just last question. If, if I ask you as an expert on this field and as a researcher, what are the policy framework would you recommend or what actually the, you know, all the stakeholders needs to do you know, to minimize the harms and exploitation that the workers are facing and also you know, across the globe, it, it could be beneficial for everyone. Yeah, excellent. This is um, something that for people in global tobacco control and public health sometimes see this as contradictory. So the first thing is, in the immediate term, individuals who devote their labor to tobacco cultivation, that's men, women, and children in Malawi, and of course, other uh, uh, tobacco-growing developing countries, they, they should be receiving fair wages. They should be receiving a fair price per kilogram, and they should not be engaged in contracts that are exploitative and that harm their livelihoods. So the first sort of policy is uh, transparency in terms of labor arrangements and to reveal the absurdity of tobacco industry corporate social responsibility schemes, because those things work to distract attention from the practices that undermine uh, the labor conditions of uh, men and women and children. Simultaneously, we need to look at alternative livelihoods to help farmers, men, women, and children who grow tobacco to exit tobacco. So those individuals that want to exit tobacco over the long term, we should be able to build an infrastructure of other kinds of commodities or services and workforce training to allow people to exit tobacco farming. Now, the reason I say these kind of are contradictory is because some people in public health say, if our goal is to reduce tobacco farming, then why in the short term should we uplift their conditions? And, and so for me, the argument is that in the short term, many people who grow tobacco wake up hungry and go to bed hungry. And that shouldn't, that shouldn't be the case. And so I think it's not contradictory to fight for the rights of tobacco farmers and farm workers for fair wages and fair prices, but then also uh, create infrastructure for those that want to switch so they can exit tobacco and grow healthy crops or get into something that is not as a harm or causing harm as tobacco. Thank you very much for joining uh, Professor Marty. Um, it's been a pleasure and lovely to have you here. Excellent. Well, I really enjoyed talking with you. I appreciate the questions. And it's also helpful for me to, you know, organize my thoughts. Um, I am excited about your podcast and I look forward to uh, uh, past episodes and future episodes. And I hope you keep in touch because I also want to learn from you with your project 
especially um, as you wind down your PhD and finish it and then um, become a, um, a, an effective researcher and advocate to end trafficking.